friends. Greg Kogel here for Stand to Reason, and so glad to be with you today and to talk to you about things that really matter. Share my thoughts on them, and then you could weigh them. And uh, as I've said in the past, maybe eat the meat and throw away the bones, because there's always bones, you know. Um, I know that not everything that I say is accurate. I know that, because I am not the only person in the world that is right on everything. The problem is I just don't know the things that aren't accurate and are accurate. So, you know, I give you my point of view. I give you, as I've said, a piece of my mind, and then um, you can sort it out. Whatever you're uh, persuaded to believe, there you go. Um, And incidentally, this is just another little thing that I learned in my philosophy studies, getting my M.A. under J.P. Moreland for those many years at uh, Talbot is that you don't actually choose your beliefs. Um, you That's called doxastic voluntarism, doxastic having to do with beliefs, and voluntarism has having to do with the voluntary action. I can't, for example, just choose to believe there's an elephant sitting next to me right now. I, j- I can't do that because I, I know there's not, so I can't make myself believe. And uh, the way we end up believing is by being um, confronted with evidence, reasons. And I mean, it might be the evidence of your sights. It might be your—of your sight, rather. It might be the evidence of information given to you or just your five senses as you're moving around. But we're making these calculations all the time, and we are forming beliefs all the time about the circumstances that we're in. And uh, and a lot of people don't believe things that are true because they don't have enough information. They have bad information that causes them to believe the wrong things. Notice the language I use, that causes them to believe the wrong things or false things. That's why apologetics is so important. Now, I'm not at all ruling out the role of the Holy Spirit because there is another element that's an element of rebellion— and I guess you could characterize it as uh, confirmational bias, if you're going to use um, kind of psychological terminology. But all that means is you've set, you have set your mind on one course of action, and you are not going to listen to the evidence contrary to it. I call that prejudice. You have prejudged. You have a prejudicial point of view. Um, but if you're willing to listen— to the other side, and your mind is open, this is an environment for you to be persuaded. Now, when it comes to persuasion about the critical things about God and salvation, this is where the Holy Spirit plays not just a vital role, but in my view, the decisive role. Um, Without the Holy Spirit, forget about it. And incidentally, it doesn't matter what theological conviction you have about free will and sovereignty, we all acknowledge the Holy Spirit is essential. Uh, Some will say it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. Others will say it is sufficient. But in any event, the Holy Spirit has to play a role. And there's a mystery in how that actually works out, and we can't always figure it out ourselves. We don't have to. What we do is fulfill our responsibility. We do our part. We communicate the truth, as accurately, as graciously, as effectively as we're able. And then God takes it from there. Now, that part is 100% our responsibility. And this is one reason that 
I'm here, and uh, I'm a student of my own craft, and you are a student after fashion listening to programs like this so that you can get better at your thinking and in, increase your stock of true beliefs and decrease your stock of bad beliefs by paying attention. And that's especially critical when it comes to spiritual issues. And so that's that's why I'm here, and I invite you to consider the things I have to say and then make your own decisions, okay? Now, I had a wonderful time on Sunday for an hour and a half, actually, as I think about what we had all told. We started a little late. People were coming in a little late on our Meet the Teacher event at 4 o'clock, and uh, <clears throat> then I went spun right past the hour and just kept going, answering questions after I'd done an introductory session on uh, <clears throat> on Street Smarts, the uh, new book coming out September 12th, subtitled Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. Now, some of you, many, <laughs> if you've listened for a while, you know I've mentioned this a bit, and I'll keep mentioning it, partly because it's just good marketing, partly because I, I want you to know that this is available if you're just tuning in. Also, it just occurred to me, this being our 30th anniversary this year. We started on May 1st, 1993. Here we are um, into the summer now of 2023. We This is our 30-year celebration. Actually, we're beginning our 31st year, but Melinda never liked me talking about dates like that way. So so this is our 30th year. And uh, and and it what strikes me, now that I think about it, is the book Street Smarts is, is really a compilation of of all that I've been working on for 30 years with Stan the Reason, the, the efforts, the thinking, the writing, the work, my general approach to doing what I do, making the case for Christianity, is really captured in this now 85,000-word volume. It's bigger than anything I've ever done before. And uh, it is an, a... Um, like a sequel to the tactics book. So anyway, just saying, you'll hear, you'll be hearing me mention that because it really is a capstone uh, project for a 30th anniversary celebration. Uh, one of the things that came up, though, during the Q&A that followed my opening comments was a question about the difference between evangelism and discipleship. Now, I have never been asked that question before, <clears throat> although I have talked about each in their own uh, in, in their own categories, as it were. I never really tried to make the distinction between them, and so I had an opportunity to talk about it. And I want to just bring you up to speed on what I said, because I think this distinction is really important. <clears throat> the Great Commission, classically understood, Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20, I think, is the verse. Um, the last great commission, the last command, I should say, that Christ left for the church. And it's the commission that is placed in our hands. And uh, that's why they call it the great commission, because it's the the job that we have to do, the task uh, that we have to complete. Um bulking now as I'm talking because I'm turning pages of my Bible to get there. Um, I have it kind of pretty much cemented in my mind, but I wanted to get it exactly right for the purposes of our conversation. Matthew 
chapter 28. Last words of Jesus. It's actually listed in my Bible under a heading, The Great Commission. And it's at verse 19, pardon me, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So here's a great commission that's given to the Church. And it's got one command, and then a number of participial 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 phrases that modify it. And the command is to go and make disciples. Notice, it isn't to go and evangelize the world. Now, I think in Mark, there is a a, a variation: preach the gospel to all creatures. But the God, preaching the gospel is not enough. Now, I know that sounds really, um, that's really weird. Preaching the gospel is not, isn't that why we're here? In fact, I've heard pastors say such a thing. The reason we're here is to win people to Christ. That's it. And if we're not winning people to Christ, then we are not fulfilling our reason to be here. The purpose of the church is to evangelize the world. Okay, now I I actually don't think that that is entirely correct. Um, I think that our purpose is our, our our broad purpose as a community is different. It entails that. That is a necessary condition of the responsibility fulfilling the responsibility we have. Evangelism is the first step, or or being evangelized, maybe it's another way of putting it, is the first step for a person. We want that person to enter the kingdom. But that's just getting through the door. Evangelism that's effective results in a conversion. The person is regenerated. They're new creatures. All right? All things have become new. The old things have passed away. But And, and that is the beginning. <laughs> it isn't the end. And this is the way some people look at it. Well, let's just—and in fact, this is the way a lot of churches look at it. They are seeker-sensitive, which then turns into seeker-centered. In other words, they're not just sensitive to new people being there that might be kicking tires a little bit spiritually and want to check things out. That's good. Make a, Give them a place to park. Take care of their kids during the service. Um, welcome them. Be careful how you talk so you're not talking over their head theologically or whatever. Be aware that you have guests in your service, but the service is not for them. And some people, the service is for the body of Christ, so that you have gifted people in the body of Christ, which includes pastors and teachers, who are preaching and teaching in order to help uh, the, the body of Christ to grow, and not just numerically. There's another passage, and it's in Pauline epistles, and I, maybe it's Colossians, I, I'm just off the top of my head, what Paul says 
is that we are we are seeking to present every person complete in Christ. We are seeking to present every person complete in Christ. Now, becoming a Christian is the beginning of that process. The resurrection is the end. And in between, regeneration and resurrection is becoming like Christ. And that is the purpose that we are here for, to win people into the kingdom so that they can work at becoming like Christ, to present every man complete in Christ. That's what all the, what the epistles, these epistles, you know, all of these things that Paul's written to other Christians are not evangelistic tracts. They are meant to build us up in the Lord in various ways, ways, various ways, so that we can be more complete in Christ. We are so the job, and which is why Matthew records Jesus' great commission that our job is to make disciples. Necessary precondition: evangelism. That's the beginning of discipleship. It is not the end of discipleship. And, and this is why I'm very comfortable not encouraging everyone to work at being harvesters when it comes to the task of evangelism. I focus on gardening. That's what I do. Garden, garden, garden. Plant, water, weed. God causes the increase. All right? And, uh, and, and then there's a harvest. Okay? Um, but the harvest is done, well, a lot of times by harvesters. <laughs> a lot of times the harvest harvests itself. That's what happened to me. My brother came to share Christ with me more on September 28, 1973. I said, Mark, stop. I, can, I already want to become a Christian. I harvested myself. John Noyce here at Standard Reason doesn't even know when he got harvested. He has no spiritual birthday. <clears throat> Which, by the way, before I forget this, and I'm likely to, so I'm just going to make a excursus here. Uh, tomorrow, <laughs> Wednesday, John will be back with his next To The Point Live video on STR's YouTube, also our Facebook and our Twitter social media channels. And he's going to be addressing what the Bible has to say about sex in a response to Joe Rogan's conversation with Matt Walsh. Now, Matt Walsh, Walsh is a guy who talks a lot about gender. And very conservative guy, got a lot of ideas. I even cite him in Street Smarts because he's got a clever question he asks um, to navigate in the gender issue. But I don't know anything about Joe Rogan's conversation. Joe Rogan's got the most popular podcast, I think, in the country, 11 million subscribers or something like that. So it's a big deal. Um, and uh, John wants to talk about that. So that's going to be, well, I say tomorrow. You're going to get this on Wednesday. So that'll be today for you getting it right away. And he is going to be on at noon, uh, is that right? Uh, Wednesday. Uh, Where is it? Is it noon? Now I'm reading the fine print here. It doesn't say the time here, but I think... Amos, when is John Noyce going to be on To The Point Live? What time? Noon? Pacific time? Could you check that for me, please? Just thanks. Um, so anyway, so that's uh, John. I brought him up because he doesn't have a spiritual birthday. There are lots of people who don't have spiritual birthdays, or if they do, they know the event when they put their trust. Twelve noon. Okay, got it. They knew the event, 
but they don't remember. But there was no other person involved. There were gardeners, 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 but they were alone when it happened. I talked to someone a couple weeks ago in Albuquerque, and she said, uh, what, like 12 generations of LDS. That's her. She was like 12th, or maybe 13th generation LDS. And after seven years of the Lord working on her, in her car, bang, Christian. No altar call. <laughs> so evangelism, again, is a necessary part, but that's just the beginning. It gets you across the line. Evangelism and discipleship are two different things. The church is called to discipleship. We are to make disciples. That means teaching, okay? Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Oh, it means baptizing. It means teaching. All right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you. I'm there. Even to the end of the age. I may tarry. Maybe a while. Keep at it. Keep at discipleship. And actually, this is what my my life has been committed to. Even stand to reason, 30 years. Our, our mission statement starts, we train Christians. That's the first three words. We don't win non-believers. What we do contributes to evangelism, but my efforts, in my interest, frankly, is m- not so much with the world, it's with the Church. It's with building up individuals in Christ to be participating in the project of presenting them complete in Christ eventually. A little here, a little there, a little here, a little there. Now, in, with discipleship, evangelism is just wide-based. I mean, just wherever you get the opportunity, as God gives you opportunity, you are you are engaging in communications that will move, hopefully, people more closer to Christ, to that decision, that that state of believing. And as I mentioned earlier, this involves giving them information to consider. But that may be varied depending on the individual. Some have more, some have less. There's different angles and directions people go with it, and this is the nature of the body of Christ. you got hands, you got ears, you got eyes. and Even when it comes to evangelizing, everybody's got some different way or something different to offer or some different angle. That's great. That's the way it works. Okay, so you're unique, you're an individual, and you can do your part. Gardening, 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 if that's what you do well, and that's what I think most do. And then sometimes some people are there a lot when people are ready to receive Christ, and they do some harvesting. That's great. We need them both. All right, but that's just the beginning. I'll tell you what else we need. We need disciples. We need individual people that have made a decision to invest themselves in other individual people as they're able at their level. Now, um, there was this uh, in discipleship. This is the terminology that I've used in the past, and I'll explain it. There's always a delta factor in discipleship. Now, what is a delta factor? A delta is a symbol that means the change, a 
okay, change from one to another. So a delta factor shows you go from this and then you change to this. I just use that concept to indicate that one who disciples is at a different place than the one who gets discipled. This is not a peer relationship. There is a delta difference. The person who's doing the discipleship is is offering things down the line, as it were, to the one receiving discipleship. That is, there's more knowledge, there's more maturity, there's more capability, whatever. It's a mentoring relationship. No, it doesn't have to be very sophisticated. When I started discipling, I was, you know, what, not even a year old in Christ, less than that. But I had shared Christ with some people who became Christians, and there were like four or five of us sitting on the floor of the living room going through the Bible, and what was I doing? I was teaching. What did I know? Almost nothing. But they knew nothing. (laughs) So there was a delta factor, right? I knew more than they did, even though I didn't know that much, so I had something to offer them. Now, as I've grown, I've got more to offer. And I find myself spending more time with people that are in a unique position to benefit from 50 years of experience of doing this kind of stuff. So this is where my sights are aimed. I'm trying to be wise with the use of my time in the way I uh, engage with disciples, people I'm working with, and those are principally right now my staff, and uh, which I who I work with very deliberately on, on issues and things like this. But I, th- this isn't about me. I'm talking about the process, and I want you to be thinking about yourself. And that is, to, to whom, yeah, objective case, to whom are you passing the baton in some fashion? What individual? Now, I know I have had scores of people tell me, and it's been wonderful, people I've never met before in my life, that I have been a mentor to them, and I'm very happy for that. I really am, and it's because... Um, Technology has made um, certain types of contact possible that weren't possible 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever. And so this is one thing we're doing, a radio show, and we've got other things. We've got websites, all that. So this is kind of a one-way thing. I'm able to impact your life. Many of you have said, well, I feel like I know you. And the answer to that is, is you do. I just don't know you. So this is even so. There's a flow of stuff. Um, from one to another, from an older brother to a younger brother or to a younger sister or whatever. There's still that delta factor. Oh, I guess you can call it the delta force. Ooh. The delta force. The ability to pass something on to someone younger or less less mature than you are in a particular aspect of spiritual things. Are you doing that? If you're a parent, the obvious, the obvious disciple <laughs> or disciples would be your own children. And of course, many, many, many of you take that very seriously. Now, there's some difficulties with that. Um, when you're dealing with your disciples, people that are part of your community that you're, you have a relationship with that there's a delta factor and you're a delta force in their life passing 
information down to them, encouragement, etc. Um, they want to be there, and they want to hear what you have to say. Uh, that's not always true of kids. Nevertheless, they ought to be first in line. So there's something, but there's, it's more than that. It isn't just your kids. We want to be passing on to adults. And you know, I was just talking to a member of my team this morning that um, has a group of—she lives in Nevada. No, not Utah. Uh, okay, LDS country. And uh, she realizes she's a missionary. That's a challenge in that environment. But um, she has a, a couple of groups of people she meets with, and one th- a group of three women, and then a group of a, a larger Bible study uh, or that she's guiding. I think there might even be a third group. But Jesus had groups, right? He had 120. And then there was a smaller group that was a little bit more dedicated, apparently, that was a 70. And then a smaller group of the 12. And then within the 12, there was the three, Matthew, uh, I mean, Peter, James, and John. So Jesus didn't spend the same amount of time with everyone that he was having a discipleship impact in their lives. He focused on those people who were most important, and then he gave himself to them in varying degrees. And the three that were critical, that were the central uh, pillars, are the ones he gave himself to the most. Okay? That's smart. And he also worked with groups, by the way. He didn't just work with one-on-one-on-one-on-one. He leveraged his efforts by working with groups. Now, some of these concepts I'm talking about I learned a long time ago from a book that's still out there and popular, and it's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Wait a minute, Greg, I thought you were talking about discipleship, not evangelism. Robert Coleman wrote this book, Master Plan of Evangelism, because he understood that Jesus' method for reaching the world was not arithmetically evangelism. One plus one plus one plus one plus one. You keep talking to individual people, and you keep winning as many as you can to Christ. No, it was a multiplication thing. It wasn't just simple addition, it was multiplication. Jesus teaching twelve. Twelve having their own disciples and multiplying that out, and those multiplying their disciples in numbers, and so you've got a geometric explosion over time. Took 300 years to pretty much dominate the Mediterranean region. That was solid discipleship. I have a friend who's got an organization working in India. It's called MPART, E-M-P-A-R-T. You might check it out. My wife and I support them because it's amazing what they're doing. They started 25 years ago with the goal of planting 100,000 churches. Yeah, you got that right. It's not a typo. 100,000 churches in the toughest portion of India. And I think they're like at 30 or 40,000 now. How'd they do it? The way I just described multiplication, training pastors who trained groups of pastors who trained groups of pastors who trained groups of pastors. And since they have a geometric plan that they're following, they're going to reach their goal very soon and then keep going. That's the master's plan of evangelism. To get people saved, you got to disciple. 
and then you have this dramatic growth. So that's the difference. Evangelism is critical, but it isn't the goal. The goal is discipleship, which is why Jesus gave the Great Commission, which has one command, go and make disciples. Pass the baton. Be a delta force in somebody else's life. That's the deal. All right, let's go uh, to break here, and we'll come back to your calls on Stand to Reason. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Greg Coco back at you here, and uh, just a reminder that this month, August, is our Be One of the 100 month. In other words, we're inviting you to consider being one of 100, that's our goal for the month, uh, new strategic partners. And a strategic partner is someone who supports Stand to Reason financially on a monthly basis according to a certain amount that they decide on. And this is the month we're asking a whole bunch of people who have been part of our community for a long time and have not participated in that way to think about doing that. Be partners with us. And uh, if you start, for example, with a monthly gift of $30 or more in celebration of SDR's 30th year of work, uh, we're going to send you an autographed copy of my brand new book, Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. Now, that'll be released September 12th. So it won't come right away, a few more weeks. But also as a strategic partner, you will be the backbone of our work here at Stand to Reason, financially enabling believers of all ages to be better and more effective Christian ambassadors wherever they go. So I'm inviting you this month especially to be a member of our cadre, our hardworking financial foundation that we call strategic partners. And by the way, when you sign up for that, there's there are more benefits that you get, and there will be more detail as when you when you sign up. The way to find out about it, just go to str.org/partner, str.org/partner. 
partner. Um, also, signups for Reality Student Apologetics Conference is well underway. We've got, God, we're pushing 1,000 already for Southern California. Actually, it's 900, but we're moving like crazy. And uh, it's going to be at Biola this year. The date is uh, September 22nd and 23rd. And we are way ahead of the pace that we've had in the past. Now, in the past, we've already sold out. We're moving faster to sell out than we ever have for Southern Cal. You can go to realityapologetics.com for that. And also in Washington, that's coming up October 13th and 14th. We're also way ahead of the pace. In other words, people are signing up faster than they are, and earlier than they ever had before. And the early bird um, rate of $49 um, ends August 19th. So you got to sign up before August 19th is the information I'm given if you want to get that special early bird rate for reality in Washington State near Seattle. Um, Bellingham, I think. Or is Bellevue? I get the bells mixed up there around. Bellevue. Okay, thank you, Amos. And uh, once again, realityapologetics.com. Heads up, Minnesota, November 10 and 11. Usually it's the very last weekend in um, November. This It's a little bit earlier this time. That's just the way the schedule works. And then, of course, in the, in the spring will be or late winter, spring, February 23rd and 24th in Dallas, March 22nd, 23rd in um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and will be in Augusta, Georgia, April 19th and 20th. So um, there's the information there. Okay, let's uh, jump into our calls. And one of my favorite people here calling the show, Mr. Cade in Colorado Springs. How are you doing, Mr. Cade? I'm doing well, Mr. Coco. Good to hear you again. Yeah, thank you. I got to call you Mr. Kate because you called me Mr. Coco. So we're just going to even pay. And I, I really enjoyed, um, what was it, two weeks ago now or was it three weeks ago? Time flies that we talked together when you were a student at Summit. Yeah, that was that was amazing. I saw that you were going to be on the schedule. And I'm like, I got to find a way to talk to him as much as I possibly can in one day. Yeah. So, well, you did that. You you uh, mission accomplished, Cade. And it was nice because there, you know, I was there for you know like 24 hours, and I had a lot of teaching, but we still had some downtime to talk together. I'm curious, how was how would you characterize um, your time at Summit? Was that your first time doing Summit? It was. It was the first year I was old enough to do it. And how was it for you? I think it was, I would just say it was, it was life-changing. Um, the things wow. I learned and the people I met. But I think the biggest thing for me was seeing the gifts that God had given me and I'm wanting to go and use them. Like you were just talking about discipleship. Yeah. I want to go and use the gifts that I've been given and like take mm. the things that you have poured into me, Mr. Noyce has poured into me, other apologists have poured into me, and help others um, mm. along the way, too. Oh, that's great. You know why that's significant, um, Kate? I mean, a little off-topic, I, I want to pursue your interest here in just a second, but um, I mean, a lot of folks know you because you've called on a regular basis. We met face-to-face, I think, three years ago in Minneapolis for that reality, and then you've been at the reality since then, and we've hung out a little bit there. And uh, people who've listened to you know that you've uh, you've been a student of your craft, you study a lot, you read a lot, you know a lot. So for you, and now, are you 16 yet, or not quite? I just turned 16 about, like, two months ago, something okay. like that. all right. All right. So you're sweet 16. All right. Great. But what's amazing is people have listened to you. And so with all the background and training and information and learning that you've had, and you still are able to say, you know, Summit was a life changer for me. 
I mean, just imagining, imagine w- what it's been for a lot of people who've never had any exposure to this. So that's a great testimony about Summit. I'm glad you enjoyed the time. Yeah, it was amazing for me. There were some lectures, you know, where I knew the content, but it was good to hear, like, uh, Jeff Myers' Worldview Talks. I love hearing you talk. John Noyes was great. So hearing all that stuff was amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's great. John Noyes, part of our team, of course. He was two weeks there for the whole session that you were there, apparently, as kind of the two-week live-in scholar-type deal. And uh, I think Alan Schleeman is there now for the session now. Uh, And so this was the one that my daughter was going to go to, Eva, but we pushed her out a year because she's still 15, and we thought, well, we'll wait a year, and it'll be better for her all around. So uh, anyway, so um, what's on your mind today, Cade? Well, Mr. Coco, I kind of wanted to follow up a little bit on one of our conversations from Summit. Okay. Um, that evening, we talked a lot about Reformed theology right. um, and Arminianism. I really think that so I, I think I told you, when we started talking, I said, I think this was one of the biggest areas I disagreed with you with. Right. I think you pulled me more to a neutral ground. Oh, wow. Uh, but I want to I want to ask you some more questions sure, about of course. Reformed theology. So my, my first question is, before I kind of jump into, like, because I wanted to jump into some passages, um, but I, I would like a better, um, we didn't really talk about this, but I would like to understand the difference between Reformed and Calvinism. Because okay. I know you make that distinction. Yeah, I do. And uh, and just just to um, make it clear, um, what I share with you about Reformed theology is my. It, this is not the stand to reason view. We have right. lots of different views uh, at stand to reason. We have Lutherans here. We have Arminians. We have Molinists. Whatever. Now, Amy and I get a lot of airtime, and uh, our convictions are Reformed, particularly with regards to soteriology. In other words, the the issue of salvation. Uh, we believe in sovereign grace. And, and again, <clears throat> to simplify that for some people, is that it is God's decision that is the decisive factor in, a, in any individual becoming a Christian. It is not man's decision that is the decisive factor, okay? And so, um, in my view, God has rescued us from bad choices we would make, how he does that—that's a—that's a, a different matter. I mean, maybe we get the details, but the—that—that's um, the distinctive. God, I—I I am a Christian because of what God did for me, and I responded to that by making a choice. Um, and so that's the reformed view with regards to salvation. Now, Calvinism is a body of thought that reflects John Calvin's theology. So there's a lot of details of Calvinism, and I, I don't even know what they are because I'm not a student of John Calvin. I actually never read John Calvin, so strictly speaking, I can't be called a Calvinist. Um, now, one of the things that John Calvin uh, held quite strongly, obviously, was sovereign grace in the sense I just described it. And so, therefore, when people talk about God's election or the chosen—these are biblical words, by the way— um, that that seemed to mean a very particular thing in the text. Um, th- that uh, when th- these are things that John Calvin also held strongly, but there are other factors or details of theology that are that are part of Calvinism, but not necessarily part of my uh, my own view. So you've got Calvinism, you have Lutheranism. Both of those are denominations or lines of, of theological thought that are rooted in an individual, 
And so Lutherans believe what Luther believed. Calvinists believe all that Calvin believes, if you're a, a fairly strict Calvinist. And um, so, so those are the those are the distinctive. Now, there are different confessions that are meant to reflect um, Reformed thought. The Westminster Confession may be the most uh, famous. Uh, you also have the um, Heidelberg Confession. You have the the confession that came out of the Council of Dort. So you have these different ways of characterizing Reformed theology writ broad. But um, there are details in those confessions, though, that I don't agree with. On Calvinism is generally covenant theology. That's their perspective, or that's what it's called. They are generally they believe in infant baptism, pedal baptism, and that's part of their whole system. I that I don't hold to either of those things, um, but uh, so I can't say I'm I'm thoroughgoing reformed. I'm not. Um, I'm not confessional as a Reformed person. I don't hold precisely to the confessions, though there's a lot in those confessions, obviously, I'd agree with. So so uh, th- that would make me different. I don't even know if Amy is confessional Reformed. Maybe she's more—I think she's more Reformed than I am. But nevertheless, um, those are the distinctions between Calvinism um, and Reformed theology. Reformed theology is larger than Calvinism. Let's put it that way. You can so be reformed. Way, you can be reformed and not a Calvinist, but you can't be a Calvinist and not reformed. So Calvinism is almost like reformed plus, basically. It's reformed and a lot of added stuff on. Is, yeah, that well, be maybe I, 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 that I can't actually answer because I, I don't know enough about Calvinism. Maybe Calvin, uh, may, Calvin has. Uh, I, I just can't answer that. I, I just, okay. I'm just the way I'm characterizing is a subset. Reformed theology entails the notion of sovereign grace, which Calvin held to, but he had other ideas too. So it might be, you know, maybe Cal, uh, Reform Plus would be, or maybe just Reform and other stuff. You know, sometimes okay. you have the plus on us, like super Reformed. No, it's just Reformed in classical Reformed sense, but there's other things that maybe other Reformed people would not agree with that Calvin held. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you for that distinction. Sure. So what I wanted to—I wanted to talk about um, specifically God choosing, but I did want to clarify that when we talked, you said that you do not believe, that, like most Calvinists do, that God predetermines every single choice— because that would make him the author of evil. Is that is that what you? Yes, believe? that's right. He, he he does not cause, in that sense, everything to happen. And I think when you read some of the confessions, um, it makes it, it makes these distinctions. Now it's it's a difficult distinction to make, um, because on the one hand. We have, and this might be, be um, I mean, some will talk about the decrees of God, you know, and um, and I was just reading, actually, and I think I recommended Charles Hodge's uh, Systematic Theology to you that, that, right. that um, Alan Gomes had edited years ago. Um, it's still a fabulous work, and I was in, it's sitting out on my floor now because I pulled it out of my bookshelf because of our conversation, and I was reading some things in there that 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 was were helpful to me because they make certain kinds of distinctions all right so um the um i'm just trying to remember where i was going on this one uh tell me again what you said the last thing you said 
I was talking about God predetermining everything. Oh, yeah, that's right. He now, predetermines everything. Okay, so, so, so th- this, this, this depends on one's way of thinking about it, <clears throat> okay? Okay. And um, you could say that that one could say. Let me see if I can think of an illustration. Look, you 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 could say. Um, well, that's not going to work. Let me just. I'll just stick with the thing itself. You could say if God chooses some, and that's the decisive element in salvation, then God not choosing others is going to be the cause of their condemnation, and therefore He's electing them for destruction. He's choosing them for destruction. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. And in a kind of a fashion, you could see that. If he's saying yes to some, and acting in such a way to rescue some, and he's not acting to rescue them, then he is, you could say, predestining them to hell. Um, I don't think that's the right way to look at it, though there's a sense in which somebody can see it that way. I think here's the right way to look at it. Everybody is choosing to go to hell, <laughs> after a fashion. In other words, they are they are choosing, in virtue of their fallenness, a course of action that results in their just and appropriate judgment uh, from God. And so, when God judges, if God were to judge everybody and rescue no one, He would be completely justified because everyone is guilty. But as an act of grace, he rescues some. He doesn't rescue all, but he rescues some. Now, I think you might have even asked me this when we talked together a few weeks ago, and it is a fair question to raise, but I think there's no real answer to this unless God tells us, which he hasn't yet. (laughs) Why rescue some and not all? if you are the one in charge of the rescuing? And um, and this is a fair question. And there are different speculations about why that might be the case. And by the way, that that comes up even on the Arminian side of the discussion as well, and Bill Craig has his own answer to that, being an Arminian himself. Uh, but, But the key thing that I want to focus in on is that it's an act of grace to rescue. And I look at, it's almost like the difference between half full and half empty, you know. Um, I'm looking at the, the predicament man has, humankind has gotten himself into, and God's act of rescuing, such that the rescue is the responsibility of God as an act of grace. But the, but the condemnation is, is a result of human beings. It's not because, like somebody said to me once, it was an atheist. I was doing an interview, and I got blindsided by an atheist who was invited to be on the show, too, and I didn't know about it. Then he pressed me on these issues, and he said, so it's my fault that I'm going—it's God's fault I'm going to hell, because he didn't choose me. I said, no, it's your fault, because of all the choices that you have made in rebellion against God. And so he was trying to play that angle against me. Now, like I said, one could— cast it in that way. One could characterize it that way. But when I read Scripture, what I see is God's longing for a lost world, okay, and an anguish that the world has gone its own way, 
and an extension of a hand, a loving hand of grace to rescue. And not a God who is just trying to slice and dice so he can throw a bunch of people in hell. That's not the picture I get when I read the Scriptures, and that's why I'm going to characterize it that way. God rescued us from ourselves, and if we had been completely left to our naked freedom, then we would all be judged for the crimes that we committed ourselves and are guilty of. Okay. That makes that makes sense. And so but I do have a question on that. And sure. I, I wanna I wanna give an illustration that I use in my head and then maybe a passage from scripture. Okay. The way I think about this, Mr. Kokel, is that uh, so you don't believe that, that God predetermines evil, so it's not God's fault there's evil in the world as human beings. We both agree no, on that. Well, when you say, it, when, when, you, when one says that God predetermined, it kind of depends what y- y- one means. He, he certainly uh, set up the world and made the world with the understanding that the way he made human beings would result in evil. No question about that. That's different. Making a world that he knows is going to eventually become a one way is not the same as as causing those things to happen. Although in right. some people's minds they're going to do they're going to, they're going to look at it that way. But that's a problem for Armenians just as much as it is a problem for um, for for reform folk because of God's omniscience. God knows everything's going to happen. Why did he do that that way? Why did he create a world in which there are going to be some that would suffer? Well, he apparently thought it was worth the risk. There's right. an upside to it, and I have to believe there's a there's a greater good that is going to the end result, given the world was made the way he made it, than if he had made it in a different fashion. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense, and I would I would agree with that distinction. So, the analogy I want to propose to you, and you can tell me if this is an accurate analogy, it's the way I think about it, is that if you have, if you're, let's just say you're a father who has two, two children on death row, mm-hmm. and you are not at fault for them being there. Mm-hmm. They, they did it on their own accord, and they're guilty. As a father, you have the ability to get both of them out, mm-hmm. but you only choose to get one out. Correct. That seems to be an, an analogy for me as to what God is doing on a Reformed view. Sure. I, I, I understand that. I've heard the analogy before, and I think it's a fair one to bring up, okay? Uh, the, here's, the, here's the difficulty, I think, with the analogy. It's one-dimensional. Well, there's actually two difficulties I'll mention to you. It's one-dimensional. That means it only looks at the ability of the father, in this case, in the illustration, to um, get uh, get his children off, and he simply decides one and not the other. And what we don't see, and even Bill Craig would acknowledge this, I know, because of the way he's answered other questions. I mean, he doesn't agree with the Reformed view, obviously, but I use Bill because he's an example of a very careful thinking um, uh, philosopher, Christian philosopher who is not Reformed, he's Arminian, and has kind of tried to work out some of these details, like, in a clever way, um, and this is where Molinism comes in. But he, even he says that there are some—we don't know all the contingencies that are going to be the consequences of particular decisions God makes. And so—and um, and God knows those. 
he's looking at a much bigger picture than just who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. I and I I certainly think that's the case, and um and and so he makes his decisions based on his wisdom. The reason that, that the illustration offered is compelling, as it is. But it, my concern is that it doesn't take into consideration other things. And someone might say, well, what are those other things? I said, I don't know. But I'm not making my decision about Reformed theology based on whether I know uh, on an illustration like that, because there are lots of other things that are going on. Here, look, you, you know the story of Squanto. Yeah. Okay, we've got about five minutes to go, and the other callers are going to catch you next hour, so don't go away. I think we just lost one. This stuff is important. Okay, Squanto uh, was the you know the the Indian that walked into the camp of the first settlers. You know the Mayflower group, speaking English and saved their little lives. Holy cow! It's like wh- what you know. Well, what had happened is Squanto had been kidnapped and taken to to England or to Spain first, and then made it to England. And he and his you know he's kidnapped. That's terrible, evil. Okay, but what resulted from that? His whole tribe died of disease. They just got wiped out. And when he finally made his way back, he had no tribe left, and he could speak English, and he knew how to survive there. And then that was his encounter that he had with uh, the Mayflower crowd, and, and that that group was able to flourish, and, that, and subsequent generations flourished, and he became a hinge-pin. The point I'm making here is when he was kidnapped, which is a bad thing, and taken uh, to, to Europe— all bad, 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 and his family all died, bad, bad, bad. There was a larger plan that was in place that God was using. He didn't cause the kidnapping. He didn't cause the disease, in my view. He allowed it so that a greater good could result. Now, at the time that Squanto was kidnapped, he had no way of assessing the circumstances except for something terrible was happening to him. Okay? So this is what I mean about the one-dimensional aspect of the illustration, when there are all kinds of other things that possibly could be going on that we don't know. And in fact, in hindsight, we actually see some of those things in God's working. Okay, this brings me to the second issue, and this will probably be my last point because we only got two minutes. The, The last thing is, and I think we talked a little bit about this, I cannot build my theology based on an analogy that seems to cast God's decision in an ugly light. What I have to figure out is, what does God actually say? And I told you at the time, uh, I, we have to start with texts, passages that make strong statements about the nature of salvation and God's role in it. And I mentioned John 6 and John 10, but I have dozens and dozens of verses that make these statements. And God opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel, and all who were appointed to eternal life were saved. And these are the elect, and these are the chosen. Well, elect are the ones that God elects. God is the one electing. Chosen are the people God chooses. That's what those words mean. So I'm not trying to persuade you with those verses right now. What I'm just trying to say is, I have to start with the text. And if the text raises a question— that might be asked in, informed in, in the shape of an analogy like you've offered, I can say, yeah, that's, that is a good question, but it doesn't change the text. So that why, that's, why I, that's why I think there's more going on here than the analogy allows us to see. And because it seems to me from the text and the teaching 
that God's actions are definitive in the issue of salvation. And that's where I always think we have to start. And most of the time when I have conversations with people, they don't start with the texts. They start with questions like like you've done. Mm. Now, we've had a long conversation about this in the past, so I'm not accusing you of that. But what right. I am trying to do is put into place the right <clears throat> uh, kind of pecking order to deal with this. We have to look at the Trinity. I mean, the, we got to start with the texts and what the texts teach, and we come up with a doctrine, and that doctrine raises some questions about intelligibility and blah, 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 and illustrations people give. But still, the text still is the text. And uh, if if it seems reliable the way we're reading it, then that's what we're, that that's what our foundation is going to be. So, Cade, Mr. Cade, thank you so much for your call. It's always a treat to talk with you. Thank you, Mr. Coco. I appreciate. It. I'll have to call back and maybe we can discuss you, some of those practices. You, uh, passages. That's right. And and uh, Amy made a, a book recommendation to you, right? It's she did. A, yes. Thaddeus Williams, God Reforms Hearts. Rethinking free will and the problem of evil, and that will be uh, that will be something anybody could read to maybe get some more information to assess this issue with. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them a heaven, friends. Bye bye now.